got the plague. I got a fever. You've got the plague. Welcome to The Plague, the podcast where we look not just at the ongoing coronavirus pandemic, but at the societal plagues, the plagues created by human socioeconomic systems that make the coronavirus more virulent and dangerous. I'm your host, L.M. Bogad, broadcasting from my shelter-in-place bunker, and every episode we examine a different societal plague, a political or social pre-existing condition that cross-indicated with the coronavirus, makes it deadlier than it could otherwise ever be. The coronavirus infects the human body, but what illnesses in our body politic make us more vulnerable? Economic inequality, environmental devastation, labor precarity? We pick a different social plague each week and talk with an expert about how that plague makes this pandemic worse and what we can do about it. When I was much younger, I had a summer job in my hometown uh, in an air conditioning factory. And when they orientated us to our new job, they explained that this was the biggest air conditioner factory in the country. It made all of its own parts, so it didn't have to buy parts from other factories. So they had a higher profit margin, which was really good for all of us because what's good for the company is good for the employees and the workers. And it was a hot summer. I was just there to make a little money for college. Started working there in this huge plant, uh, and it wasn't air conditioned. And we're making air conditioners, and on some days it was 104 degrees inside. And the clanging of the machinery and lifting heavy things off the line every uh, couple of seconds and handling heavy equipment. And obviously we're sweating so much that our brakes turned into water brakes. You would just go and drink water for 15 minutes and then go back to it. And even at that age, I said, geez, we're, we're the biggest and best air conditioner factory in the country. It's a heat wave. The place isn't air conditioned. I'm living in a Marxist cartoon. This plant manufactures irony. And to be clear, the issue wasn't just one of mere comfort. Uh, it was that at that kind of temperature, working heavy physical labor, uh, it's a health issue, health and safety, right? Someone's going to get dehydrated and pass out, maybe dropping something heavy. Uh, someone's going to get, you know, heat stroke. And it would have been so easy if the management cared at all uh, to air condition a plant that makes very cheap air conditioners in huge numbers. But clearly, with all of the physical plant in that enormous factory, we, the thousands of workers in the plant, were the most disposable equipment. We were the most expendable tools, the soft machines that could be replaced cheaply. Now, I did mention that the plant manufactured irony in a certain sense, and as an extra ironic ingredient, and you can look this up, the name of the corporation that ran this plant was White Consolidated Industries. And again, I was one of the privileged ones. I was just there because of good fortune to uh, make a little money for school. And it wasn't my full-time job for many, many years. It just gave me a perspective. And I feel that this is something that our guests today are getting at. Uh, when the relationship between owner and corporation and management and the workers is such that the workers are the most expendable and disposable tools in the shop. Uh, they are the softest parts, the soft machines that uh, can be worn out and, uh, and used up. And uh, you can negotiate their value. It's harder to really negotiate the value of, of metal. It is what the market will bear. Labor becomes this more uh, crushable uh, component in the production process. So what do we do in a world where uh, workers are considered so disposable that an entire ideological powerful faction in the country wants to reopen uh, and uses state power and corporate power to reopen uh, workplaces in a pandemic to keep the economy going, to keep the profit model running knowing that their workers will catch this virus, suffer, 
and some of them will die. We've got a couple of guests on today on The Plague that really have a lot of insight, both in terms of historical knowledge, theoretical understanding, and perhaps most importantly, practical and legal aspects of the cure for this plague. Solidarity economies and worker-owned cooperatives actually creating the economy we want to live and work in. Our guests today are Sabiha Basrai and Ricardo Samir Nunez. Sabiha Basrai is a member of Design Action Collective in Oakland, a worker-owned cooperative dedicated to serving social justice movements with graphic design and web development services. She is co-coordinator of the Alliance of South Asians Taking Action, where she works with racial justice organizers to fight against Islamophobia. Sabiha is also a member of the Center for Political Education's Advisory Board and a part-time faculty member in the University of San Francisco's Department of Art and Architecture. We've also got Ricardo Samir Nunez on the show today. Ricardo is currently the Director of Economic Democracy at the Sustainable Economies Law Center. The Law Center exists to bridge the gap in legal expertise needed to transition from destructive economic systems to innovative and cooperative alternatives. At the Law Center, Ricardo co-coordinates legal education, research, advice, and advocacy to support the growth of a future of work that is democratically controlled by workers and communities. He is board president of the U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives and a board member of the California Center for Cooperative Development. He is also becoming a lawyer without going to law school through California's Law Office Study Program, which you can learn more about at likelincoln.org. I love that. It's the way Lincoln did it. We hope to hear more about that, too. Sabiha, Ricardo, it's such an honor to have you here on The Plague and to, to talk about this desperate problem. The plague of the expendability of workers as disposable parts in our current economy. It is interesting to, um, to look at the current crisis, the shelter-in-place crisis, and then to uh, look at what are considered essential and non-essential workers. Um, and then to see the impact that has on the stock market, on, um, on businesses, on communities themselves. And I think one of the things that um, was really striking to me at the early stages of this is when the economy was tanking, when people were sheltering in place and um, they came out with the CARES Act, the response to start to provide some economic relief to, to um, the country. Um, what you saw was a bounce back in the stock market and what we learned from the financial crash of or financial crisis of 2008, 2009 was that um, the people who are going to get bailed out are the large corporations, the large companies, and they have learned a very valuable lesson from, from that history and that they know that the government is going to bail them out first before they bail out communities. And so when we saw the stock market tick back up after the CARES Act, that was an indication that large corporations and companies um, whose whole uh, whole profit margin is based off the exploitation of labor and the planet, they realized and were reassured by the government that they were going to be um, taken care of regardless of the impact this has on our communities. Um, and so I think that's maybe just as like one starting frame uh, entry point into this is that mm -hmm. that um, large corporations, a capitalist economy is is going to be supported by our government as it exists right now. Um, and, and they know that. Um, and so I think it's really important for communities and workers to understand that as well, um, that that that's the focus of the government. And we are workers and communities are really secondary um, if that secondary um, interest to to supporting mm -hmm. and, and helping us get through this crisis. In many ways, watching the stock market, it's like getting the pulse, not necessarily of a healthy economy, but of the what the business community and investor community anticipate. And uh, you may already know folks like this. I do folks who have small businesses and we're told by their bank, we really can't let anyone skip the line. You've got to wait your turn only to find out that the major banks had these 
less needing major corporations skip the lines to get into the trough of money faster. So, Yeah, I really agree with that. And one of the things that this current plague moment has also reminded me is that when you're a worker for these major corporations, uh, that also doesn't mean that you're going to have any security. And so the government prioritizing the survival of major corporations um, goes hand in hand with selling out workers. And this um, that anxiety of uncertainty around what's next month going to look like, what's next week going to look like, do I have a job or not, is the part that I find most terrifying in this in this moment. And that, um, for me, I'm grateful to be part of a worker-owned cooperative because that level of anxiety is, is somewhat softened for me personally because mm. I'm part of a team that's um, in conversation with one another about what that future looks like for us as workers. Mm-hmm. Right. And the decision-making process uh, is coming from the mutual interest of all the members as opposed to <laughs> very opposed interests. Because if, if I if I can just dwell on this for a minute more, there is this ideology that says, well, if we give the mega corporations, just give them more money, that's a way of preserving jobs. When they get this money, is that their first priority, even in a pandemic crisis? Do they say, cool, we're going to keep all our people employed? Is that what you all have noticed? Um, no. <laughs> That's clearly a rhetorical question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> a little bit on the nose there. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, as we've seen, right, they buy back their own stock, they give mm-hmm. out huge bonuses. And if it serves them in the moment, sure, they'll keep the workers that they feel they can continue to make money off of. But uh, these extra bonuses from taxpayer dollars, uh, I would argue, are more efficiently spent bolstering uh, grassroots organizations that absolutely will keep everyone on board. Uh, wouldn't it be nice if worker-owned co-ops got some help from the government in times like mm-hmm. this? That's definitely, mm-hmm. it's a one-to-one ratio. If you give organizations like this the money, they will absolutely keep everyone afloat, if that's really the idea. Right? Yeah, just to that point around, um, it really shows the underlying flow of the economy um, when when we talk about, okay, so what are they actually going to do with this money? And it's um, making sure that their shareholders um, are taken care of. That that's like the whole stock market is just this casino of shareholders trying to buy in and and um, make more money off of their investments without any contribution of value to the businesses that are actually producing goods for our communities, and um, it really gets to this mm-hmm. this point that when I'm doing a lot of teaching around cooperatives and we're trying to to describe what cooperatives can do and worker cooperatives specifically, it's good to start um, off with what's the conventional economy, what's the capitalist economy, what are the principles underlying um, that economy, and uh, really the the sole purpose of any business, of any corporation in, um, in our economy is to maximize uh, profit. It's to maximize profit and to give that profit to its shareholders. And and there's uh, economists who describe this and who are ideologically um, saying that it's a good thing that um, that corporations and companies have no social responsibility to the public or society, and its only concern should be the increase of profits for itself or its shareholders. Um, and in fact, there's folks who have said that if you try to put any social responsibility or any social good as part of a business, it actually leads to totalitarianism. That that's that that trying to combine the um, some type of social good with profit maximization within within companies or within an economy actually leads to um, to totalitarianism, which is just a ridiculous kind of. Um, that's incredible. Um, and again, not to uh, belabor the point, but uh, these are things that entire societies have done to just regulate, to bring in regulations and regulate corporate behavior. And I, I, I don't think these countries are totalitarian states, mm-hmm. right? Um, states where there's some reasonable regulation of, of corporate behavior. Um, 
you know, I find that particularly ironic, Ricardo, because um, as you know, the history of it, um, of course, it, back in 1973 on September 11th, uh, a democratic government in Chile was overthrown. You made me think of this where uh, the uh, Allende, who was a democratically elected president, overthrown by Pinochet, uh, who became a military dictator, explicitly guided by these kinds of principles, by uh, unfettered capitalism and the basically the theories of Milton Friedman and the Chicago School of laissez-faire capitalism. The irony being it was a total torture-based uh, dictatorship state, right? Um, but they certainly did enforce unregulated capitalism on the people. And many years later, we're seeing an ongoing uh, unrest uh, in Chile now trying to undo some of that uh, damage. But I, I, I take your point. Uh, if if it's literally legal that corporations are people, but unlike us, I'm I'm regulated in my behavior as a person. I can't be a total sociopath and do whatever I want for my own personal profit. I think <laughs> corporations seem to be a little more mandated to be so. Right? Mm -hmm. um, it's actually their job. Right? They must legally. You can be sued by your shareholders if you're not as ruthless as possible in the pursuit of profit. So, yeah, the divine right of capital is really this, um, both that ideological uh, foundation that we were just speaking to, but also this legal foundation um, that has, it was it was decided in a Supreme Court case in um, 1919 um, about, it was basically um, Dodge versus the Ford Motor Company, and the Ford Motor Company was using some of its profits to actually provide higher benefits and higher wages and actually doing more charitable activities for the communities because the Ford Company was such a profitable company. And what ended up happening was shareholders sued the company because they said, hey, you're taking away our profits and giving it to the community for charitable purposes. And that's not your purpose. Your purpose is to make us money. And then we can do with that money what we wish. And maybe we do charitable, maybe not. But um, when it went to the Supreme Court in the early 1900s, um, the Supreme Court decided um, that a business corporation is organized and carried on primarily for the profit of stockholders and that the board of directors, their whole purpose is to make sure that the company is moving toward that end. And that um, shareholder primacy norm, um, this legal foundation for maximizing shareholder return has been again and again um, reaffirmed in the courts. And so we get to this point where, um, like you said, shareholders sued uh, Ben and Jerry's. Ben and Jerry's was trying to do good things for their communities and their shareholders sued them um, to make, make them stop doing charitable activities. And then when we see this sort of divine wow. right of capital. Was that successful? Because Ben and Jerry's was so well known as sharing the profits and having very humane rules for how they run their company. Yeah. Did, did that all get undone? It, um, they were forced to stop using some of their profits towards charitable activities, and they had to figure out other ways to do that. Wow. Yeah. Um, the divine right of capital, the shareholder primacy norm. But then what's its connection to labor? Um, and the law. And actually, um, when, when you're a law student or like myself, a legal apprentice, um, and you're learning about employment law, one of the foundational um, components of, of labor law or, or employment law is they, they, the law is set up and recognizes this power differential between the boss, the owner, and the um, employees. And they actually call it um, a master-servant relationship. And so the whole, all of employment law and labor law is meant to um, mediate the relationship between the master, your boss, and the servant, the employee. Um, and when I first heard that, I was just like, wow, we really are living in this feudal-like <laughs> system. When we enter the workplace, it is like, still a feudal space. To be clear, that's the legal terminology. That's the, that's the legal terminology when they're describing this relationship <laughs> between boss and, and employee. Right. Yeah. right, right. Incredible. By the way, for a little Bay Area flavor, um, there was a legal case, I'm going to say about 20 years ago, um, where of all, of all things, the anarchist punk band, the Dead Kennedys, had a lawsuit where the rest of the group were suing Jello Biafra 
because he refused to use their songs for commercials. Companies like, a, a, I think, a jeans company were trying to buy, give them money to use Dead Kennedy songs to sell their product. Joe Biafra said no. The other Dead Kennedys were like, we need this money. They sued and they won because of the laws you're talking about. And it was like, even if you're an anti-capitalist punk band, you still have to sell if the other people want to make money. And there's not a legal stance to say, uh, we don't want to do this. So anyway, the, the law is complicated in the sense, um, or I should say adverse. Sevilla, as a working artist, uh, I'm just curious if you've had experience to contrast, like between being in a worker cooperative, working for a corporation or examples that you have of, of the sharp distinctions between these different modes of working. Yeah, thank you. I've been a member of Design Action Collective for almost 14 years now. Um, the shop itself was mm -hmm. was founded about 16, maybe 17 years ago. Uh, the years blend together now. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but it, it was formed originally because of a, you know, answering a need from our communities and from our social justice movements. And so there's already kind of an origin story for Design Action that was just inextricably linked with social justice community organizing. That's not the case for every worker-owned cooperative. Um, the worker co-op model, uh, as it stands, doesn't require it to be so like clearly mission-driven um, as a business. But that was Design mm -hmm. Action's um, backstory. And you know, for folks who don't know, the worker co-op model is really defined by having everybody who works at that company have a democratic ownership stake in that company. So every, everything is run democratically. Um, if you're a worker, you're also a co-owner. And different shops structure their kind of personnel and decision-making processes a little bit differently. Uh, there are you know, fundamental co-op principles, which um, Ricardo can speak to too if you want. But um, mm -hmm. you know, we made a decision in the inception of Design Action to be incorporated as a California worker co-op. At the time, there were only a few states that even legally allowed you to do that. Um, other shops were kind of just technically LLCs and then created democratic bylaws in order to operate as cooperatives. But we really made that um, decision early on. And it was actually... Uh, because two members of, a, of another worker co-op called Inkworks Press, which was founded in Berkeley in the 70s uh, to provide printing services to our social justice movements. Um, two members from that shop, Inosanto Nagara and Kim Thomas, uh, were taking the initiative to spin off and create a new shop that was dedicated to serving our movements with graphic design. And the the planning they did was really from a place of abundance. So unlike um, mm. you know, maybe a small business that is uh, working around a scarcity model that we are taught very much under capitalism to, um, to even self-exploit our own labor uh, in order to survive, mm. um, Eno and Kim really thought about the, the future of the shop that they wanted to build, um, even if they didn't have all the resources to realize that vision at the moment. So, uh, for example, um, when Design Action was founded, there were, it was a worker-owned cooperative, which meant that as it grew, um, folks would be, we become owners. Um, there was not going to be a situation where there would be a bunch of employees or contract workers. Then, uh, secondly, there were explicit political points of unity. So this was a shop that, you know, clearly stated anti-capitalist values, amongst other things. Mm -hmm. And wanted to also be a unionized shop. So that meant um, being a, uh, you know, dues paying members of um, Communication Workers of America, uh, which is a little bit of a funny relationship because if everybody is an owner, um, why do we need a union? That means like we have, the workers have to protect ourselves from ourselves. <laughs> and that, uh, hmm. that master uh, dynamic that Ricardo was um, mentioning was, you know, uh, somewhat uh -huh. complicated with, with uh, everybody being a worker and being an owner. But the reason that we right. decided to union, be a union uh, shop was like probably three reasons. One was we wanted to honor the legacy of organized labor and, 
paying dues was um, was part of expressing that. Uh, we wanted to uh, hold ourselves to union standards. So even as, especially as a, a startup mode worker co-op, we we had a union contract that said that we're going to offer uh, paid vacation and sick time and all the different, um, you know, family leave and all of these different benefits that um, the organized labor has fought so hard for over the centuries to give workers. And we couldn't afford to do all those things at the moment, but having that union contract and a memorandum of understanding with our union allowed us to at least um, mark where we were going and give ourselves the map mm -hmm. to get there. And fast forward several years, right. we've, we have been implementing all, um, almost all of that. Uh, and then lastly, you know, we do work for a number of unions. Um, we do design and web, web making work for other unions and um, uh, unions work with union shops. So there's a solidarity there too. Mm -hmm. uh, so, right. the but uh, thinking through like just the foundation of a worker co-op, turning those capitalist values on its head, uh, has helped mm -hmm. me understand what my role and responsibility is as a worker, as an owner, and also as being in relation with the people that I work for, or work with. That's that's wonderful, and like both being in dialogue with other economies of solidarity, with other groups, with this aligned values, uh, contributing to a larger movement. And also, I guess it's like, it's a binding contract with yourself to say, uh, we are not going to exploit ourselves <laughs> beyond a certain point. Um, I've spoken to friends who are freelance artists and they will say, yeah, I'm my own boss, which also means I'm my own exploiter and I can just go way too far and, and push myself beyond any reasonable limit in order to survive. Uh, so I, I see the, that because there's a contradiction there, a nice way to resolve it is to have that conversation and bind together as a co-op and as, as a union local. How does this operate specifically in a pandemic? I don't know why I'm thinking about a pandemic. It's, uh, it's just on my mind. Um, but here we are, right? Um, the way workers have been treated in other industries where there are, these are not worker owned co-ops. These are major, uh, corporations traded on the stock market with all the legal, uh, uh, obligations to make as much profit as possible, a master servant relationship legally. Um, and in addition, the state, right? The state takes a place now with this current administration. Uh, the U S president can use the, can invoke the war powers act and could demand, right? that major industries be retooled to produce as many testing kits and masks as possible and could reorganize the sector of the economy to drive research funds into uh, finding a vaccine, for example, or building facilities that make social distancing in uh, necessary uh, activities more possible, right? These are all things that the War Powers Act can do in an emergency. And how was the War Powers Act uh, enacted recently by this administration? To force meat industry workers to go back to work and to cover the liability of the corporations that are their bosses in case people get sick and die, they'll be covered by the government for any legal liability. So we're in this upside down world now in those kinds of relationships where it's not only the corporations, it's the state backing that up to the death, right? How does your uh, being in a worker-owned cooperative affect the kinds of decisions you would make on how to survive uh, in a pandemic? We've seen now how the meat industry does it. Um, how do you do it? Yes, this is uh, a scary time for all of us. And, you know, for me as a graphic designer, I'm not on the front lines of providing essential services to uh, mm -hmm. people's ability to get food and um, get their health care. So I'm very aware of just the various steps removed. Um, my particular business is from the kind of immediate pain of the crisis. But um, given mm -hmm. that we are all workers, we all have um, to 
make a living, take care of our rent, and um, several design action members have kids, are juggling how to deal with all the school closures. So knowing that that was all on the horizon, we had been in conversation with one another, regularly checking in with um, like, okay, what what is the latest news? What do folks need? Um, as far as decision-making process, we always circle up um, at least once a week for dedicated time to make decisions together on how we're going to run our business and um, take care of uh, new questions. And we've, mm-hmm. over time, really invested in, in processes that build trust with one another. So we can talk to each other about what we need. And we try to see each other as whole people and not just workers. So... Right now, during this pandemic, as so many large corporations are forcing their workers into higher risk situations or even just simply laying people off due to loss of business, um, co-ops are finding creative ways to, um, ways to survive. So um, we've been really prioritizing people over profits um, while also trying to be strategic about how we can ensure the survival of our shop uh, so that we all have our jobs and can continue to do the work that we want to do according to our capacity. So in practical terms, Mm -hmm. that's meant uh, seeing where we can just add additional sick leave, um, making protocols and contingencies for if any of us get sick, um, how do we make sure that certain uh, critical parts of the business are taken care of, making a decision before the shelter-in-place order went went into effect to all work remotely and work from home and make sure we had the setups we needed at home and... uh, be uh, available to one another as capacities change. So those of us, uh, for example, those of us who didn't have kids checking in to see if we could move projects off of the parents' plate, um, making sure that mm. parents or others who had you know other responsibilities or um, various levels of capacity around health could could say what they needed and ha- foster an environment where that was uh, a safe thing to do with each other because. It's not, um, it's not an expectation. It's not baked in that you can, um, we can talk about our personal needs and outside of just my ability to do my work. So those are, right. those are, that's a constant, uh, relationship building, trust building kind of thing to care for. And I'm really grateful that I'm part of a collective that has been prioritizing that. So, so as things continue to change, I trust that I, can say where I'm having anxiety, where I'm scared, where I'm stressed, and uh, and have a collectivized problem solving around that and not feel isolated in having to solve it myself. Right. I mean, that's real solidarity when people actually get to know each other and understand, um, well, we're not robots, so it's not about we all have to produce the same amount per day. This is your human situation and your specific context you're in right now. Uh, it's a workplace that is humane and uh, caring, essentially. You have different capacities right now. We acknowledge that and we allow for it. One of the other things that's really uh, grounding me right now is that because Design Action's um, work kind of business model has always been to try and blur the lines between the vendor and the client, um, really operating on a sliding scale, knowing that we're all on the same team working towards mm. common goals of social justice has al- also allowed that trust building to happen with the folks we work for. So uh, I, right. I've just been really moved to, to see, you know, our clients uh, writing to me, checking in to see, are, are you all okay? How, how can we support you right now? Um, here, these pro- there's project deadlines and, and commitments and budgets that we want to be accountable to, but everybody that we're working for also understands that we're, try- we're trying our best given difficult circumstances and that we're in, in conversation with each other. It can be accountable to one another while still be- being mm-hmm. flexible. And that's just right. very moving. Huh. So when done right, solidarity and compassion are contagious. <laughs> I know that's a tricky word right now, but uh, I think at least there can be some good contagions in our current time.
Sabia, Ricardo, can we talk a little bit about, you know, th this sounds wonderful. If it's possible to create a workers' co-op and join a growing movement of worker cooperative uh, industries and workplaces, how do you get started? And I, I believe you get started first with unifying values that you both talked about a bit. Maybe we can dig more into those basic values and the origins uh, politically of this movement. And then it would be great to get onto the nitty gritty of where do I go? How do I learn more? How do I get started? Okay. Um, yeah, I think just to, to tie in maybe the, um, the conversation about what are the val underlying values and, and um, then the practical steps and those types of things. I think one of the really valuable um, distinctions that we're able to see right now is that people are understanding uh, the value of human life in a different way, in a more stark way, in that the capitalist principles are of uh, human value is what can you produce. And I think the the thing about um, right now is that you have political leaders saying, hey, you might love your grandparents, you might love your family and friends who are immunocompromised, but they are not worth the economy going down the tubes. And so I think moving into a space for us, this is like a moment of, of real contradictions being exposed um, and that we do view human value in different and novel ways um, or really ancient ways actually. Um, and so I think that's one of the really valuable things about cooperatives and hopefully this being a space where people can see them as a step towards um, a different type of economic relationship. And I think it also, um, earlier to Sabiha's point around the collective decision-making that is allowing her and her workplace to feel more of a, of a community as opposed to these atoms or, or disposable parts of human labor, um, that, that that's the type of cooperative economy we can, and solidarity economy we can really um, breathe and move into and all the little contradictions and little steps along the way that we're gonna have to, to make. Um, and so I think as we're trying to move into this new space, it is incumbent for us to have some underlying principles and underlying values and maybe to give a little historical context. There's definitely been cooperative and solidarity economy practices that have that have been through time immemorial if I can use that term um, mm -hmm. and uh, and and the modern cooperative uh, movement let's call it at least in the West um, really some of the foundational moments were in England during the Industrial Revolution when people were being displaced from their from their jobs because of automation, because of mechanization. And so communities came together to build um, a different type of economic relationship to make sure that they could all get through this. And so a group of artisans came together um, in England, created a consumer cooperative grocery store so that their community could still have access to um, food and, and basic um, household goods and those types of things. And they wrote out um, cooperative principles, six cooperative principles um, that have really held the test of time and that'll, that the international cooperative community, um, whether it's worker cooperatives, consumer cooperatives, housing cooperatives, um, really use as sort of guideposts, um, as guiding principles for themselves. Um, and those, those principles include voluntary and open membership, um, and, and really how that's interpreted is, is non-discrimination. Um, anybody who can um, do the work is allowed to, um, to apply and, and uh, potentially join. Democratic member control. So it's one person, one vote. Um, member economic participation. So anybody who's going to be a member of the cooperative has to provide some type of economic participation, whether it's through buying the goods from that store, contributing their labor, um, uh, helping the household run, those types of things. Um, another principle of cooperatives is autonomy and independence. They are membership 
based organizations. And so it's the members who control them, not outside actors, not outside shareholders who have no, you know, relationship to, um, to the, to the organization. Another principle is education, training, and information. And so we understand as a cooperative community, and it's been uh, time and time again seen that um, we do not, we don't live in a society that has cooperative values. We live in a society that has um, domination and hierarchical and um, command and control values. And so we need to do a lot of education and training of ourselves to unlearn those things and to learn a different type of um, relating to each other. Um, the sixth principle of, of cooperatives is cooperation amongst cooperatives. And this is borne out because we live in a sea of capitalism and, and we're not going to be able to build a new economy with islands of cooperatives. We really need to connect to each other um, and build an ecosystem mm. um, to be able to, to um, survive and thrive um, as a cooperative community. Um, and the last uh, cooperative principle is concern for community. And so how can your cooperative work for a sustainable um, future for our communities and, and really take that into an account? So those seven principles um, are actually uh, followed by the cooperative community internationally um, and around around the country and around the world. Mm-hmm. It's it's so it's such a wonderful combination of really important ideals and practical sort of savviness in this in these values that you just described. You know, um, we must not discriminate. This is the divide and conquer, conquer politics of uh, corporate attempts to bust unions, for example, and turn different uh, identity groups against each other, ethnic groups, et cetera. Uh, a cooperative is already saying, yeah, we're aware of that and we, we are positing something better, but then also saying we need to work with each other. We are outnumbered in a sense, um, uh, at least at the beginning. To grow the movement, it has to cooperate amongst cooperatives, right? One of the beautiful things that I've found in seeing these like on a theoretical level and then seeing them in practical um, spaces, places, relationships, is that they allow us to understand the contradictions that we are all living in and really try to, to mm-hmm. move through them and to create collective um, responses as opposed to what happens in the capitalist economy and the capitalist ideology is that we are all individuals. There's no such thing as society. And so when that's the framework that we're living in, every failure is your failure. And when we're in a cooperative, when we're in, uh, when we're shifting into a solidarity economy of, of mutualism, um, it really starts to open up the possibilities because every failure isn't your failure. It is an opportunity for the community, for people to come together and to figure out how to overcome that challenge. Um, and so it really starts to uh, externalize and to expose those contradictions uh, that, that we all live in as we're trying to transition from, from this exploitative uh, economy to, to a regenerative one. Another exciting thing that I I find about what Ricardo just said is that we're also investing Mm -hmm. in one another's success. So we're not seeing Mm -hmm. each other's shops as just straight up competition. Um, We are really looking at each other as part of an ecosystem where my success can lead to your success and vice versa. So that has also helped me as a worker not feel as isolated and even as a, you know, a co-owner of a small shop and not feel like the burden is all on us to figure out our own kind of future, that we're in constant mm-hmm. relationship with, with other shops, even in our own industry, like other graphic design, web development, technology, worker co-ops, that we're really spending time like thinking of creative ways to support each other. And in this time of pandemic, we're also just ramping up those, those check-ins too, to see like, has some, is one of our shops really hit hard by, um, a lot of jobs getting canceled? Can we support each other in some way? And that's just, a it's just such a different way of thinking about being a business owner. Right. Right. We, well, it's, it's a part of a growing organism and you nurture the whole organism, <laughs> not just one organ, 
and uh, so it's not it's not a war of all against all essentially quite the opposite because um, I can imagine there might be some times because you are producing you are selling services that it could potentially get co um, competitive um, between uh, cooperatives in the same industry but I imagine that those instances even when they happen um, they're not so disruptive as to uh, you know, poison the atmosphere, as it were. Um, I'm wondering how that kind of thing, uh, does it happen often? Is it a problem? Yeah, that's a good question. So mm -hmm. Design Action Collective is part of various political and professional formations, uh, besides the mm -hmm. uh, network of Bay Area worker cooperatives and the U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives. We're also um, mm -hmm. in kind of conversation with other movement technology projects, and um, creative arts and graphic design spaces, some of which have other worker co-ops represented, um, but also have individual and more traditional structured shops. And mm -hmm. just because we are in those, um, those formations, we're able to just see each other. And it's like, what are your priorities? What are you trying to do? Let's compare notes. Let's talk shop. And so if a, a potential project comes up that Design Action is excited to potentially uh, write a proposal for, uh, you know, respond to an RFP, uh, you know, request for proposal, then we might say, this could be a good opportunity to partner with that shop, that other shop that we know that does similar work to us. Or uh, mm -hmm. maybe we should just check in with them and see if they also saw this request for proposal. Were they planning on writing one too? And just having that conversation makes all the difference because it might come out where we say, yeah, we're both going to bid on it and, you know, may the best shop win and no hard feelings kind of thing, trying mm -hmm. to make sure that we aren't actively undercutting each other uh, where we're um, then feeding into a race to the bottom of lower wages, but that we sometimes one shop is just a better fit than another. And that's, that's totally fine. Uh, but the best case scenario is when if neither shop is the perfect fit, but if we join resources, we could really um, meet the client's needs uh, that much better. And we get to practice um, learning from one another and, and how we do do the work and expand our own skills and, and you know, build our relationship. Mm -hmm. So we really look for more opportunities to do that and engender that kind of trust so that if there is something that comes up in the future that's weird um we know each other mm -hmm. and we can just have an honest conversation with one another and not have it be uh awkward right I, I, that's amazing and you can just play back from our first part of the podcast the way the corporate model works and compare it to what you just described and how different it is right um and i imagine also let's say one group gets quote unquote gets the job and the other doesn't obviously there's a lot of jobs out there to be gotten um but also the the nature of that kind of moment i imagine tell me if i'm getting this um when you don't get a certain uh, contract in a big corporation, some folks may be punished, fired, laid off, because the priority is to drive profit, right, and to incentivize that. And because in a in a worker-owned co-op, the point is that everyone survive, thrive, grow, learn new skills, you know, essentially uh, help each other out and be productive and create amazing, beautiful things. Um, when there is something that doesn't go as desired, the first response is the opposite of let's fire somebody, right? So I, it just seems to me, if I'm getting this right, the stakes are different when you're negotiating these things. Yes. And we do, we do really want to make sure that our shop survives. So the, um, the question is mm -hmm. how, how are we maybe needing to shift our overall business model if something's not working, mm -hmm. if we're not being able to get the income that we need to pay our wages, we, there's something holistically that needs to be addressed versus uh, saying, oh, if this one worker leaves, then everything's fine. Everything will be fine. Mm -hmm. And uh, so sure. when in the 2008 um, uh, recession or the, we kind of, we definitely felt the impact of that and really circled up around what are ways that we need to either expand our services, um, outreach to other sectors diversify the kind of work we're doing, the kind of uh, clients we have, so that we can 
ride out this particular storm and be more sustainable in the future. And the work that we did mm -hmm. back then is definitely uh, helping us now, even today, uh, feel like we can have some sense of stability despite the level of uncertainty that this pandemic is causing. Right. It's actually a, a more flexible model, or I should say a more adaptable model to crisis um, because it's more holistic. This is a crisis. It's super challenging economically to everybody. Um, but if you're in a co-op, you're considering a wide range of difficult choices and creative choices to adjust to hard circumstances, not the usual corporate decision, which is to treat some some people as disposable. And hopefully that solves it. We're, we're even seeing with COVID, of course, as, as I mentioned, um, some workers are, are being considered disposable and you have to go back to work. And um, some folks like people who are immunocompromised, literally on Fox News, I've seen people say, well, I, I'm, I'm willing to sacrifice my life because I'm older for the economy. Meanwhile, this is a very wealthy commentator who is absolutely sheltered from the pandemic, by the way. But the message is poor older people are expendable. <laughs> And um, what I'm getting from the solidarity economy from you two, Ricardo and Sabiha, is that no one's expendable. And there are many other ways to adjust to a crisis. Um, I'm wondering if you could speak to that a bit. Um, in the big picture, uh, what are some things you would advocate for as far as disaster relief? The response to, of, of communities has been Phenomenal. I think that a lot of people that you've just seen the proliferation of mutual aid um, groups around the country and in such mm -hmm. stark contrast um, from that response where they are seeing each other as members of a community, as as friends, as neighbors and trying to figure out ways to support each other um, to the response from government where, like you were talking about uh people were worried that meat production was going to fall and and so enough people weren't going to get meat and that's when the government decided to use this war powers act um, and not when you have black communities being decimated two or three times the death rate of of white communities from this plague they're calling it the black plague because it's um because the coronavirus is tracking so well onto existing lines of um, racial and economic inequality across the country. Um, and so right. that that response of that really shows what's what's valuable to to our existing um, government and institutions from that response. And um, the response from communities right. is is one of social solidarity and supporting each other. Um, and I think the the cooperative community in trying to uh, to figure out a, a response and to articulate some some real ways that um, we could respond differently is how can we uh, how would the how would it look if the government uses existing resources and all of these people thirty million people who are unemployed instead of giving them a pittance of money. Um, or some some unemployment benefits, even if they're um, if they're able to access it. What if we created some funds or used existing um, resources to start to fund business startups, to start to fund employees taking over those businesses, giving employees those the the capital to take over the assets of that business, and then convert those businesses to employee ownership, to democratic employee ownership, to worker cooperatives, um, and so. The, there's a coalition of, of organizations, both in California, we have a California state coalition of organizations, and nationally trying to craft and create these responses and to start to advocate for these types of policies where we're talking about employee buyouts for companies. There's going to be, and already has been, many companies who are going to um, fail and close during, during this time. Why don't we start to set up some funds and some mechanisms so that the employees can buy out those companies because some of those companies are valuable for those communities. And what we need is to transition right. those to make them more valuable because the employees would then be owners and that money would circulate there. Um, and then all of the uh, sort of wraparound um, resources that are needed. So like um, guarantees for the loans that would be backed by the state, um, tax exemption to make it more, um, uh, 
what sexy <laughs> can't think of a better word right now for uh, for existing owners to sell to their employees um, and then and then also the education and outreach I mean part of their I would say that social justice is sexy I don't think there's anything yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but also to fund the education and outreach because part of the part of the um, reason we're talking about worker co-ops today on the plague is because people don't know what they are how they function um, or right. if they do, right. they might have some misconception where every decision has to be made by everybody as opposed to what actually happens in practice is there's a wide spectrum of ways that you can make democratic decisions in a workplace. Um, so, so really, there's folks all over the country trying to figure out how can we make, um, make the community response from uh, mutual aid groups and the principles that are underlying those responses. How do we make that at a systems and scalable mm-hmm. Right. I, and, you know, we have precedents from of this sort of thing internationally. I'm so glad you mentioned this. This is such a great campaign and I hope it is successful. Um, we in Argentina, back around the turn of the century, 20 years ago, as you know, there was an economic collapse due to uh, uh, speculation. And it's just it was a crisis in the economic system. Many businesses were abandoned by their owners. They were like, we've lost money. We're out. You know, and there's these workplaces and, and plants that were just abandoned. And um, there was this wonderful movement that started of workers taking the businesses legally or not immediately legally and saying, well, we're going to run. The boss left. We're going to make this work. And a lot of worker co-ops started in Argentina in the middle of a crisis like we have right now with folks taking over the businesses and successfully running them and sustaining them and eventually getting legal uh, approval for them, you know. so these, this can work, and it has happened, and it can be very practical, uh, beyond practical, right? Uh, successful. Where can people get more information about, about that campaign, Ricardo? Um, if you follow the Sustainable Economies Law Center, um, you go to our website and uh, sign up for our newsletter. We'll be putting out some information as, as we're rolling out the campaign. Um, the organizations that we're working with are Project Equity, who focuses on... Um, uh, supporting the conversion of existing uh, conventional businesses to democratic employee ownership. Um, the U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives is involved, um, as well as the Democracy at Work Institute, which is a think-and-do tank trying to build democratic worker ownership across the country. Um, so if you follow any of those organizations, as well as the Sustainable Economies Law Center, you can hear more about the policy advocacy that we'll be doing uh, moving forward. That's wonderful. And of course, uh, on the podcast description, we always post the web links to all of these resources, folks. So, And there will be quite a few from this episode if anyone wants to look up and learn more. The cooperative movement is helping many people to survive and, and get through this pandemic and beyond that to thrive and have a healthier and happier uh, workplace that is part of a movement to make this uh, paradigm hopefully replace the current one eventually, right? Um, for now, it exists in this complicated co, uh, coexistence, right, with the current paradigm. But um, it is it is growing. Ricardo, if, if some of our listeners wanted to create a worker-owned cooperative and be part of this solidarity economy, um, how would one get started? How does this, how does this get going? So uh, for people who are interested in starting a cooperative, um, whether it's a worker cooperative, a multi-stakeholder cooperative, which is a a cooperative with multiple members um, representing different um, stakeholder groups, you can go to Sustainable Economies Law Center, go to our events page, um, and we have uh, what we call the Resilient Communities Legal Cafe. And that's a three times per month um, advice session. And even if you don't have legal questions and you're just wanting to talk about your idea for your cooperative, it's a great place to go. Talk to people who have deep knowledge, years of experience working with cooperatives, and it's free. Um, so feel free to, to go to our website um, to RSVP to that. There's also the U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives, and they do uh, at least once a month, they do a startup webinar. And so it's just the practical how-to step-by-step conversation around how to start a worker cooperative. So that's offered by the U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives. Um, And there's so many other resources out there. The cooplaw.org is a legal resource library for cooperatives. We have the um, Cooperative Development Institute, 
Cooperation Works. We have so many other organizations with resources. So really, um, my my biggest uh, request for anybody interested in starting a worker cooperative or a democratic organization is don't try to do it um, all on your own. We've made all the mistakes. So learn from from, <laughs> from the community of practitioners like Sabiha who um, and and others who have who have been sharing their resources. And there's also lots of stuff on YouTube, lots of webinars and trainings that we provided that others have provided. Um, to help people understand the practical steps of starting and operating a worker cooperative. Yeah, I just want to also thank um, the U.S. Federation of Worker Co-ops and Sustainable Economies Law Center for the like, relentless advocacy work. And uh, just for me, coming to convenings of you know national convenings of worker co-ops over the years and seeing how every year there's dozens of new worker co-ops that have started, and a majority of which are started by people of color based in you know, grassroots economic justice struggle. And I'm just really inspired uh, with the momentum right now. And so despite this current pandemic, I'm really optimistic about our future. You've got the plague. I got a fever. You've got the plague. You've got the plague. Guess what? I got a fever. You've got the plague. You've got the plague. As always on The Plague, we uh, offer the opportunity to our guests to contribute something creative on their theme. And Sabia, I understand you have actually a, a creative uh, visualization exercise to share with the audience that helps with strategizing and imagining the change we want to see in the world. Sure. So I'm a visual person. So uh, I'll invite you all to um, try and practice visualizing this image with me. But the Center of Story-Based Strategy, uh, which is an organization Design Action Collective works a lot with, um, has a wonderful thought experiment called the fourth box. So imagine a piece of paper with four boxes. The first box has an image of three people trying to peer over a big fence to watch a baseball game. They are each different heights and each have one wooden crate to stand on. This crate distribution illustrates equality. The tallest person can see the game, but the shortest person still can't see anything. The second image shows a redistribution of crates so that the shortest person now stands on two stacked crates and can see over the fence as well. And this shows equity. Everyone can see the game and the, create, the crates were distributed according to need. And then the third image titled Liberation, um, we see the fence itself has disappeared. Everyone can see the game. There's no need for crates to stand on at all. So the center of story-based strategy now invites us to draw a fourth scene in that fourth box. What can we imagine for our communities when there are no fences? What, what do we have access to? What do we define um, as inclusion? How do we define safety and joy? So I invite you all to do a drawing exercise with me uh, and think about those themes. We need to use our radical imaginations, don't we? We need to exercise them like muscles uh, to imagine things like, well, what if we win? And Ricardo. I wanted to offer a poem uh, to, uh, to, I don't know, close us out, to come towards the end. Um, so this poem is by Gloria Anzaldúa. Um, it's called To Live in the Borderlands. To live in the borderlands means you are neither Hispania, India, Negra, Española, Nigavacha, Eres, Mestiza, Mulata, half-breed, caught in the crossfire between camps while carrying all five races on your back, not knowing which side to turn to, run from. To live in the borderlands means knowing that the India in you, betrayed for 500 years, is no longer speaking to you. The Mexicanas call you rajetas, that denying the Anglo inside you is as bad as having denied the Indian or the Black. Cuando vives en la frontera, people walk through you. The wind steals your voice. You're a burra, buey, scapegoat, forerunner of a new race. Half and half both. 
women, woman and man, neither, a new gender. To live in the borderlands means to put Chile in the borscht, eat whole tortillas, whole wheat tortillas, speak Tex-Mex with a Brooklyn accent, be stopped by La Migra at the border checkpoints. Living in the borderlands means you fight hard to resist the gold elixir beckoning from the bottle, the pool of the gun barrel, the rope crushing the hollow of your throat. In the borderlands, you are the battleground where enemies are kin to each other. You are at home, a stranger. The border disputes have been settled. The volley of shots have scattered it, the truth. You are wounded, lost in action, dead, fighting back. To live in the borderlands means the mill with the razor white teeth wants to shred off your olive red skin, crush out the kernel. Your heart pound, you pinch, you roll out, uh, smelling like white bread, but dead. To live the borderlands, you must live sin fronteras, be a crossroads. Thank you. We need to have solidarity across borders while they're still there, across boundaries of identity, right? And we need solidarity within and between workplaces as well. Thank you for reminding us of that, both of you, Sabia and Ricardo, and, and thank you for bringing your expertise and your testimony to the plague. You're welcome. Thank you for having us. You've been listening to The Plague Podcast. I'm your host, L.M. Bogad. And for more information on my books and performance work, you can go to lmbogad.com. Sound design and music by Jason Montero and my other friend named Jay.